friends, and welcome back to Bitching About the Mabinogion. Last time we heard the story of the dream of Maxinoledic. Today I'll be reading Llith and Llevelis. Now this is a fairly short tale, so I'll be including quite a bit of commentary to give you cultural context that will help you understand both this one and some of the stories that we'll be hearing later on. And with that, let's begin. Beli the Great, son of Minogan, had three sons, Llith and Kaswathon and Nunyal, and according to the story, Flevelis was a fourth son. Attentive listeners may recall Beli up Minogan being mentioned in the previous story as the person that Maxinoledig conquered Britain from. So this is set in approximately the same quasi-historical setting, the idea of an independent, reasonably united island of Britain. But it is not mutually consistent with the dream of Maxinoledig. In this one, Maxinoledig is not involved at all. After Beli died, the kingdom of the island of Britain fell into the hands of Llyth, his eldest son and Llyth ruled it successfully. He renewed the walls of London and encircled it with countless towers, and after that he ordered the citizens to build houses within it so that no kingdom would have buildings or houses like them. And what is more, he was a good warrior, a benevolent and bountiful in giving food and drink to all who sought it. And although he had many forts and cities, he loved this one more than any other, and there he lived for the most part of the year. For that reason it was called Karliv, and finally Karlindain, and after a foreign people came there it was called Llindain, or Lundris. Once again we're having a story of place names, the idea that London started off as Llyth's fort. Best of all his brothers, Llyth loved Llyvelis, for he was a wise and prudent man. When Llevelis heard that the king of France had died without leaving an heir, apart from one daughter, and had left the kingdom in her hands, he came to Llyth his brother to ask him for advice and support, not only for his own benefit, but also in an attempt to increase the honour and dignity and status of his people by going to the kingdom of France to seek that maiden as his wife. His brother agreed with him immediately, and Llevelis was pleased with his advice on the matter and straight away they prepared ships and filled them with armed knights, and they set out towards France. As soon as they had landed, they sent messengers to announce to the noblemen of France the nature of their request. After the noblemen of France and her princes had conferred, the maiden was given to Llevelis and the crown of the kingdom along with her. And after that, he ruled the land wisely and prudently and prosperously, as long as he lived. One of the things that will come up in these stories over and over again is that a wise man, and particularly a wise prince, seeks advice before he acts. So, Flavellus here seeks advice from his brother. The noblemen and princes of France gather together and take counsel before they wed off the princess. This is how a prudent ruler acts, and we'll see in later stories what happens when a ruler does not take advice, or seeks advice from bad advisers. 
After a period of time had passed, three plagues fell upon the island of Britain, the like of which no one in the islands had seen before. Now, according to the footnotes, the three plagues are also mentioned in a triad, where they are listed as the Coronii, the Picts, and the Saxons. So, the triads are... They come up all through these stories. They're like a cultural mnemonic for important things that happened. These were the three golden shoemakers. This one, this one, and this one. And that will remind you, oh yeah, so-and-so was one of the golden shoemakers. What was the story around that? Oh yes, that was the story. They get mentioned over and over and over again. They're really, really common. And one of the most useful texts available to us as scholars of Celtic studies these days is a collation of this huge number of triads. If you ever want to go seeking it out, it's the Trioid Ernest Predine, The Triads of the Island of Britain, edited and translated by Rachel Bromwich. That's B-R-O-M-W-I-C-H. So these triads list the three plagues or oppressions as the Coronied, the Picts, and the Saxons. The next footnote then suggests that the Coronied may be confused with the uh, Caesariid, the Romans. So there's this sense that even though the three plagues mentioned in the story of Thith and Llevelis are not all invasions, in some way they represent these invasions. So the first of these plagues was the arrival of a certain people called the Coronied, and so great was their knowledge that there was no conversation anywhere in the island that they did not know about, however softly it was spoken, provided the wind carried it. Because of that, no harm could be done to them. The second plague was a scream that was heard every May Eve above every hearth in the island of Britain. It pierced people's hearts and terrified them so much that men lost their colour and their strength, and women miscarried, and young men and maidens lost their senses, and all animals and trees and the earth and the waters were left barren. The third plague was this. However much food and provision might be prepared in the king's courts, even though it might be a year's supply of food and drink, none of it was ever consumed except what was enjoyed the very first night. And the first plague was plain and clear, but the other two plagues no one knew their meaning, and because of that there was more hope of getting rid of the first than there was of the second or the third. Because of that, King Thith became greatly troubled and anxious, for he did not know how he could get rid of these plagues. He summoned all the nobles of his kingdom and asked their advice as to what they should do against them. And with the unanimous advice of his nobles, Llith son of Beli went to Llevelis his brother, king of France, to seek advice from him, for he was a wise man of remarkable counsel. Then they prepared a fleet and did so in secrecy and silence, in case those people, the Coronied, or anyone else should get to know the reason for their mission, apart from the king and his advisers. And when they were ready, they went in their fleet, Llith and those he had selected with him, and they began to sail the seas towards France. When news of that reached Llevelis, since he did not know the reason for his brother's fleet, he came from the other shore to meet him with a huge fleet. When Llith saw that, he left all his ships out at sea, apart from one, and in that he went to meet Llevelis, who, in another single ship, came forward to meet his brother. 
and when they met they embraced and greeted each other with brotherly affection. When Thith told his brother the reason for his mission, Flavellus said that he already knew why he had come to those parts. Then they conferred as to how they could discuss their business in some other way, so that the wind would not catch their conversation and the Coroniae'd find out what they were saying. And then Flavellus ordered a long horn of bronze to be made, and they spoke together through that horn. But whatever one said to the other through the horn, only hateful, hostile words were heard by the other. And when Flavellus saw that, and how there was a demon obstructing them and creating trouble through the horn, he had wine poured into the horn to wash it, and through the power of the wine the demon was driven out. One thing I find interesting here is the idea that, of course, they wouldn't be writing back and forth. It's just not even considered as a possibility. And we can attribute that, if we want, to people not being sensible in stories. Or we can consider to what extent this folktale may be drawing on something that is before writing was super common. Once there was no obstacle to their conversations, Flavellus told his brother that he would give him some insects, and that he should keep some of them alive for breeding in case, by chance, that sort of plague came a second time. But he should take some others and crush them in water. That, he affirmed, was effective in destroying the Coroniaid. That is to say, when Thlith returned home to his kingdom, he should summon all the people together, his own people and the Coroniaid, to one meeting, on the pretext of making peace between them. And when they were all together, he should take that powerful water and sprinkle it over one and all. And Flavellus assured him that the water would poison the Coroniaid, but it would neither kill nor harm any of his own people. The second plague in your land, he said, that is a dragon and a dragon of another foreign people is fighting it and trying to overthrow it, and because of that, he said, your dragon gives out a horrible scream. And this is how you can find out about it. When you get home, have the island measured, its length and breadth, and where you find the exact centre, have that place dug up. And then into that hole put a vat of the best mead that can be made, and a sheet of brocaded silk over the top of the vat, and then you yourself keep watch and then you will see the dragons fighting in the shape of monstrous animals. But eventually, they will rise into the air in the shape of dragons, and finally, when they are exhausted after the fierce and frightful fighting, they will fall onto the sheet in the shape of two little pigs, and make the sheet sink down with them, and drag it to the bottom of the vat, and they will drink all the mead, and after that they will sleep. Then immediately wrap the sheet around them, and in the strongest place you can find in your kingdom, bury them in a stone chest and hide it in the ground and as long as they are in that secure place, no plague shall come to the island of Britain from anywhere else. So there's a lot to unpack here. First of all, the fighting dragons. Some of you may recall the fighting dragons from some Arthurian stories. The idea of the fighting dragons representing the Welsh and the Saxons appears in a 9th century history of the Britons, and then is repeated by Geoffrey of Monmouth, in his part of the history of the Britons, and from there it became just part of the whole Arthurian legend, and that is the origin of the red dragon on the Welsh flag. Second thing I'm going to mention is the pigs. The idea that these dragons are fighting in the shape of monstrous creatures, and then they rise up as dragons, and then when they're tired they turn into two little pigs, it seems so bizarre. And it is kind of bizarre, but also pigs are just a really, really resonant, like, folkloric animal in the Celtic tradition. 
they'll come up again. So they're not they're not like a laughable or undignified animal like we might think of them. It's almost like you know, like horses. There's this idea that they're a valuable and significant and important animal. And the idea as well of burying something to protect the island of Britain from future plagues. The burying of the dragons is one of the three fortunate concealments. Again, another triad. And we'll hear another of those fortunate concealments in another story much later. The cause of the third plague, Flavellus said, is a powerful magician who carries off your food and your drink and your provisions. Through his magic and enchantment he puts everyone to sleep, and for that reason you yourself must stand guard over your feasts and provisions. And so that sleep does not overcome you, have a tub of cold water at hand, and when you feel sleep getting the better of you, step into the tub. Nice practical advice there. And then Llyth returned to his own country, and without delay he summoned every single one of his own people and the Coroniaid. And he crushed the insects in the water, as Llavellus had taught him, and sprinkled it over one and all. And all the Coroniaid were thus destroyed, without harming any of the Britons. Sometime after that, Llyth had the length and breadth of the island measured, and the central point was found to be in Oxford. Which is weird, because that's not the central point of Britain. But... Oxford, I guess, was an important place at various times? He had the ground dug up there, and into that hole he put a vat full of the best mead that could be made, and a sheet of brocaded silk on top of it, and he himself kept watch that night. And as he was watching, he saw the dragons fighting, and when they had grown tired and weary, they landed on top of the sheet, and pulled it down with them to the bottom of the vat. And when they had drunk the mead, they fell asleep, and while they slept, Llyth wrapped the sheet around them, and in the safest place he could find, in Eriri, he hid them in a stone chest. After that, the place was called Dinas Emris, and before that it had been Dinas Faraon Danve. Faraon Danve was one of the three chief officers who broke his heart from sorrow. Again, another mention of a triad. It's one of those things where if you don't catch the reference, it's a weird insertion but it's just part of linking everything into the same body of folklore and tradition. And so ended the tempestuous scream that was in the land. And when he had done that, King Thiv had an enormous feast prepared, and when it was ready he had a tub of cold water placed beside him, and he personally stood guard. And as he stood there, armed with weapons, about the third watch of the night, he heard many wonderful songs and all kinds of music, and felt drowsiness forcing him to sleep. At that, in case his plan was foiled and he was overcome by sleep, he immersed himself in the water again and again. At last a man of enormous stature, and wearing strong, heavy armour, came in carrying a hamper, and as had been his custom he put all the food and drink that had been prepared and provided into the hamper, and made off with it and nothing amazed Thlith more than that so much could fit into that hamper. With that King Thlith set off after him, and spoke to him in this manner. Stop, stop, he said. Although you have inflicted many wrongs and losses before this, you will do so no more, unless your fighting skills show that you are stronger and braver than I. And immediately the man placed the hamper on the floor, and waited for Thlith to approach. 
there was violent fighting between them until sparks flew from their weapons. And finally Thith seized him, and fate saw to it that victory should fall to Thith as he threw the oppressor to the ground beneath him. Having been conquered by strength and force, the man asked him for mercy. How can I grant you mercy, said the king, after all the losses and wrongs you have inflicted on me? All the losses I have ever inflicted on you, he said, I will restore to the extent I have taken, and I will never do this again, but be your faithful vassal from now on. And the king accepted that from him. This sort of deal-making is really common, where someone has done something wrong, someone else overpowers them, and then they make an agreement between them about how things will be into the future. This is because Welsh justice is very much a reparations-based system. So, I mean, you can get revenge, but that gets messy over time. So instead, you make payment or restitution. And these payments usually cover both the injury itself, and then there's a second payment that's like the face price that pays for the shame that came with the injury. So this man here promises to restore all the losses he had inflicted, and also to be a faithful vassal. And that is what he offers in exchange for the king's mercy, so that they can then have a restitution instead of revenge. And that is how Slith freed the island of Britain of the three plagues. From then until the end of his life, Slith, son of Beli, rules the island of Britain in peace and prosperity. And this story is called The Tale of Slith and Llavelis. And so it ends. Now, we've got a bit of time left. So I'm going to talk about the next set of stories. These first two I chose to go first because they both share an approximate setting. They're both from this period of the Island of the Mighty when Britain was an independent region with its own king and they both in a way reflect ideas of what it meant to be a sovereign territory. The next five stories I'm going to read all link in to Arthurian legend. They all refer to the court of King Arthur. Now, most of us these days grow up with some awareness of the story of King Arthur. It's one that's been really resonant and really widely told for a thousand years, and in between the various stories and movies and novels we learn a bit about King Arthur. The thing you need to know about King Arthur is that King Arthur's court provides a convenient setting for stories to happen in. When you're looking at a tradition of oral folklore and legends, what you'll often find is that things don't have a really strong sense of of sequence, of beginning and middle and end, this comes first, that comes second, that comes third, because it's not, it's not created as one narrative arc. People add bits off to the sides or in the middle, or they expand stories, or they add an epilogue, or they decide to follow a character somewhere else. King Arthur's Court is a fantastic setting to do this with, because you've got all these different knights that can 
go off on quests and do things. They can have backstory. They can join the court. They can leave the court. They can call on these other knights for aid. There's all sorts of potential there. And so King Arthur himself is often not the protagonist of a lot of stories set in the Arthurian court. And that's what you'll find here, that he's not really the protagonist of these tales that we're going to hear over the next several episodes. The easiest comparison, I find, to help understand this kind of story structure is to look at something like Doctor Who. Doctor Who has this core concept, this core character, and stories are told that might be one episode long, or a two-parter, or you might have a whole lot of different episodes in a season that each have their own story but contribute to an overall arc. Or you might get a series of episodes in a row that are building up this really big story. And then you'll also have spin-off stories like the Torchwood stuff, which is just pulling a character that people like, or pulling a, a moment and then exploring that. And some of the stories that we see in Doctor Who, you know, they jump around in the timeline, not just the external time, but also the timeline of the Doctor as a character. Sometimes you're jumping around backwards and forwards because that's what's compelling. And so it just seems like a mess. You get the same thing with something like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where you get stories that are sort of focused on the central narrative, you get spin-off ones, you get backstory, you get that whole series of TV shows they did about, you know, Daredevil and so on that really don't link to the central characters very much, but they're still in the same approximate universe. And when you think about, say, Greek mythology, which many of us are reasonably familiar with, you can see that there as well. The cast of characters and the approximate world setting are present across many, many stories. But those individual stories are not trying to tell something that fits into the whole world, into some grand narrative. They're just a story in that setting. So we're going to hear five different stories in this Arthurian setting. The first one and the last one have quite a different character. The last one is The Dream of Fronabwi, and that one's coming last out of this set because it is it's a little odd, and in some ways it's almost a satire of the genre. The first story is the tale of Kuluk ak Olwen, and it's coming first because this one is much more the native British Arthurian tradition and not so much influenced by the Anglo-French Arthurian tradition. It's got some fantastic motifs in it and some fantastic things to explore. But King Arthur himself is not really much of a character. The important thing is King Arthur has a court full of incredible people. And Kuluk, our protagonist, is his nephew and is thus able to call on those incredible people for assistance in his quest to fulfil an enormous list of impossible tasks. Kulakak Olwen as a story has some really remarkable lists, and it's something that I probably won't be able to tell in just one episode, so we're going to tell it piece by piece. I hope you enjoyed today's story. I hope you enjoyed my ramblings on various aspects of the cultural context. 
and I look forward to speaking to you next time. Bitching About the Mabinogion is told by Gwen Verch David and produced by Amanda Martell. Take care, and thanks for listening.